Section 47 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 12, Part 2. The anxious hour of waiting did, however, come to an end. They had carried off the poor, gurgling fellow. Lay him on the bench there, I heard the regimental doctor order. He is not to be brought back into hospital. He is already three parts dead. And yet he must surely have still understood the words, this three parts dead man. For with a despairing gesture he raised both his hands to heaven. Now I was sitting in a carriage with the two physicians and four sisters of mercy. It was stiflingly hot, and the carriage was filled with the smell of the hospital and sacristy, carbolic acid and incense. I was unspeakably ill. I leaned back in my corner and shut my eyes. The train began to move. This is just the time when every traveler brings before his mind's eye the object towards which he is being taken. I had often before travelled over the same ground, and then there lay before me a visit to a chateau full of guests, or a pleasant bathing place. My wedding tour, a blessed memory, was made on this same route, to meet with a brilliant and loving reception on the metropolis of Prussia. What a different sound that last word has assumed since then. And today? What is our object today? A battlefield and the hospitals round it the abodes of death and suffering. I shuddered. My dear lady, said one of the physicians, I think you are ill yourself. You look so pale and so suffering. I looked up. The speaker had a friendly, youthful appearance. I guessed that this was his first service on being recently promoted to the rank of surgeon. It was good of him to devote his first service to this dangerous and laborious duty. I felt grateful to these men who were sitting in the carriage with me for the relief which they were in the act of bringing to the sufferers, and to the self-sacrificing sisters, really of mercy. I paid heartfelt admiration and thanks. Yet what was it that each of these good men had to bestow? An ounce of help for one thousand hundredweights of need. These courageous nuns must, I thought, bear in their hearts for all men, that overmastering love which filled mine for my own husband, as I had felt just now that if the fearfully disfigured and repulsive soldier who was gurgling at my feet had been my husband, all my repulsion would have vanished. So these women must have felt towards every brother man, and surely through the power of a higher love, that for their chosen bridegroom, Christ, but, alas, here also these noble women brought an ounce only, one ounce of love to a place where one thousand hundredweights of hatred were raging. No, doctor, I replied to the sympathetic question of the young physician. I am not ill, only a little exhausted. The staff surgeon now joined in the conversation. Your husband, madame, as Baron S. told me, was wounded at Konigratz, and you are travelling thither to nurse him. Do you know in which of the villages around he is lying? No, I did not know. 
My destination is Königenhof, I replied. There a physician awaits me who is a friend of mine, Dr. Bresser. I know him. He was with me when we made a three days examination on the field of battle. Examined the field of battle, I repeated with a shudder. Let us hear. Yes, yes, doctor, let us hear, begged one of the nuns. Our service may bring us into the position of helping at an examination of the kind. So the regimental surgeon began his narration. Of course, I cannot give the exact words of his description, and again he did not speak in a single flow of words, but with frequent interruptions, and almost with reluctance, being only compelled to speak by the persistent questions with which the curious nuns and I assailed him. The narration, however, though sketchy, formed a series of perfect pictures before my mind's eye, which impressed themselves so on my memory that I can even now make them pass before me. In other circumstances I should not have so clearly comprehended and retained the doctor's sketches. One always forgets so easily what one has heard or read, but at that time the narratives made almost the impression of an experience. I was in a state of high nervous tension and excitement. My fixed thought of Frederick, which had gained the mastery over me, made me represent Frederick to myself as a person concerned in each scene described, and on that account they remained fixed in my mind as painful things I had myself experienced. Later on I noted down the events related by the regimental surgeon in the Red Book, just as if they had taken place before my own eyes. The ambulance was placed behind a hillock which protected it. The battle was raging on the other side. The ground quavered and the heated air quavered. Clouds of smoke were rising, the artillery was roaring. Now the duty was to send out patrols to repair to the scene of battle, pick out the badly wounded and bring them in. Is there anything more heroic than such going into the midst of the hissing rain of bullets in the face of all the horrors of the fight? exposed to all the perils of the fight, without allowing oneself to be penetrated by its wild excitement. According to military conceptions, this office is not distinguished. On the sanitary corps, no smart, active, handy young fellow will serve. No man in it turns the girls' heads. And a field doctor, even if one is no longer called by that name, but regimental surgeon, can he nevertheless hold a comparison with any cavalry lieutenant? The corporal of the sanitary corps ordered his people towards some low ground against which a battery had opened its fire. They marched through the dark veil of the powder smoke and the dust and the scattered earth to a point where a cannonball, which struck the ground at their feet, bounded in front of them. They had only gone a few paces when they began to meet with wounded men, men slightly wounded who were crawling to the ambulance, either alone or in pairs, giving each other mutual support. One sank down, but it was not his wounds which had sapped his strength, it was exhaustion. We have eaten nothing for two days, made a forced march of twelve hours, got into the bivouac, and then two hours afterwards came the alarm and the fight. The patrol went forward. These men would find their way for themselves and manage to take their exhausted comrade with them. Aid must be reserved for others still more in need of aid. 
On a heap of rocks forming part of a precipitous declivity lies a bleeding mass. There are a dozen soldiers lying there. The sanitary corporal stops and bandages one or two of them. But these wounded men are not carried off. Those must first be fetched in who have fallen in the center of the field. Then, perhaps on their return march, these men can be picked up here. And again the patrol goes on, nearer to the battle. In ever-thicker swarms, wounded men are tottering on, painfully creeping forward, singly or together. These are such as can still walk. The contents of the field flasks is distributed amongst these. A bandage is applied to such wounds as are bleeding, and the way to the ambulance pointed out to them. Then forward again. Over the dead, over hillocks of corpses. Many of these dead show traces of horrible agonies. Eyes staring unnaturally, hands grasping the ground, the hair of the beard staring out, teeth pressed together, lips closed spasmodically, legs stiffly outstretched. So they lie. Now through a hollow way, here they are lying in heaps, dead and wounded together. The latter greet the sanitary patrol as angels of rescue and beg and shriek for help. With broken voices weeping and lamenting, they shout for rescue, for a gulp of water. But alas, the provisions are almost exhausted. And what can these few men do? Each ought to have a hundred arms to be able to rescue them all. Yet each does what he can. Then sounds the prolonged tone of the sanitary call. The men stop and break off from their work of aid. Do not desert us, do not desert us, the poor injured men cry. But the signal horn calls again and again, and this, plainly distinguishable from all other noises, is evidently going further afield. Then also an adjutant comes in hot haste. Men of the sanitary corps? At your command, replies the corporal. Follow me. Evidently a general wounded. It is necessary to obey and leave the rest. Patience, comrades, and keep a good heart. We will return. Those who hear, and those who say it, know that it is not true. And again they go further, following the adjutant at the double-quick, who spurs on in front and points the way. There is no halting on the way, although on the right hand and on the left resound shrieks of woe and cries for help and although also many bullets fall among those who are thus hurrying on, and stretch one and another on the ground, only onwards and over everything, over men writhing with the pain of their wounds, men trodden down by horses tearing over them, or crushed by guns passing over their limbs, and who, seeing the rescue corps, mutilated as they are, rear themselves up for the last time, over them, over them. End of section 47. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks.